Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Oh, I know, Gavin. I read the news today. Oh, boy. And that's why we're sticking with the script, because otherwise I'm just going to sit here and say fuck for like 45 straight minutes. Fuck. The following podcast contains... Filthy, foul, vile, vulgar, coarse, in poor taste, unseemly, street talk, gutter talk, locker room language, barracks talk, Body, naughty, saucy, raunchy, rude, crude, lewd, lascivious, indecent, profane, obscene, blue, off-color, risque, suggestive, cursing, cussing, swearing, explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asked a simple question. When you decided to call your new fruit the kumquat, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is a Friday, June 21st, 2019. It must be George's Will edition of the show where we talk about how I lost my face in a mysterious sky wizard and found it again in George Carlin. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Christ 2.0, new for the now, divine for the times, and gospel on the go. Christ 2.0 disrupts the brick-and-mortar Christianity with a fresh new face for the 21st century. No time to pray on Sunday? Log on to Christ 2.0 and schedule your intercession with the divine on your own time. Forget about getting the family together and slogging down to mass. Christ 2.0 family plan is a faith for all with individualized accounts for mom, dads, and the kids. Worried about the sanctity of confession? Our best-in-class blockchain security ensures no one will know about your sins except you and the Lord. Christ 2.0 is great for weddings, funerals, or just those times in life when the pressures of the world are pressing on you. Salvation is just a click away with Christ 2.0. Available in all denominations and sects, download Divinity from the App Store on Google Play or Apple or directly from Jesus.co. Christ 2.0, it's religion for the modern world. So to get around a lot of this, I decided to worship the sun. But, as I said, I don't pray to the sun. You know who I pray to? Joe Pesci. (laughs) Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. Two reasons. First of all, I think he's a good actor, okay? To me, that counts. Second, he looks like a guy who can get things done. (laughs) Joe Pesci doesn't fuck around. Doesn't fuck around. In fact... In fact, Joe Pesci came through on a couple of things that God was having trouble with. For years, I asked God to do something about my noisy neighbor with the barking dog. Joe Pesci straightened that cocksucker out with one visit. It's amazing what you can accomplish with a simple baseball bat. I've probably mentioned a time or two that growing up in the evangelical faith and some of the more theatrical elements of the services scared the shit out of me. What with the screaming, the jumping on pews and all the tears and shit. And honestly, had I grown up in a more mainline faith, I probably would have been a lot quieter about leaving the faith. But I also wouldn't have had some of the talents that make this show the quasi-entertainment you're quasi-enjoying today. 
I've never really talked about the process of losing my faith, though, because it was a process. I mean, I'm sure that some people just wake up one day and say, Fuck that. I'm done. But to my way of thinking at the time, I had to believe in something. If fundamentalist Christianity wasn't my thing, then maybe I was just going to the wrong church. So for a couple of years in my mid-twenties, I went on a quest to find religion, something that I could believe in. Now, I dabbled in other versions of Protestantism, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Church of God, you know, the big names, but none of them seemed all that different than what I grew up with, just more boring. For a short time, I thought about becoming Catholic because I was, you know, hoping there really were secret vaults in the Vatican Library containing books of ancient magic rescued from the Library of Alexandria, and maybe if I got a Catholic membership card, they would let me in. But when I brought this up to the priest during, you know, these introductory meetings, his reaction wasn't what I would call promising. Son, is there something wrong with you? Are you mentally okay? At the time, I thought he was hiding the truth from me about the vaults. Turns out, he was just hiding the truth from me that uh, the Catholic's big secret is how much the priests like to fuck little boys. I even read the Book of Mormon. Fuck it, why not? I'm in. Which I gotta tell you, is a hell of a good yarn, and also patently fucking unbelievable. Joseph Smith was a more successful David Koresh without a guitar. I spent some time with the Eastern religions, and I quite liked the concepts of Buddhism, which didn't involve believing in in divinities if you didn't want to. It was just, you know, being chill and thinking about shit until you achieved enlightenment. But the problem with Buddhism is it takes a lot of time investment to achieve nirvana, and honestly, from what I could tell, one could just skip all that shit with a couple of puffs off some really good Humboldt trip weed. Admittedly, I might have skipped some of the reading, but really, the results just seem to be the same. I'm high as fucking balls. For a brief but intense period of time, I was big into Wicca. It could be witches, some evil witches, which is ridiculous because witches, they were persecuted. Wicca, good and love the earth and women power, and I'll be over here. Wicca is, of course, the modern recreation of what some people who smoke too much Humboldt trip we think a pagan religion might be like, complete with covens, and yes, spells. No, not a... Like at the spelling bee in Washington. But, you know, rituals, candles, chanting, burning herbs, and strange words, you know. And, and, and there's the witch stuff? Witch stuff? Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. I won't say that I ever was an actual Wiccan, but I will say that I really liked women who were into Wicca, those who weren't lesbians, and some of the rituals when they were performed, they were performed skyclad, which meaning you were all natural. So I spent rather more time with Wicca-related research than was truly necessary because I didn't believe in that either. And I was pretty much in a no-man's land of apathetic agnosticism by the late 1990s when something happened that changed everything for me. I had an epiphany of sorts. I say of a sort because the actual definition of the word epiphany is the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles as represented by the Magi in the book of Matthew. Now, of course, the word has evolved over the years to... Of course, today, we use the word differently. It's evolved into the just the general meaning of the sudden realization of something, usually a choice we weren't aware we had a choice about, as represented in this cultural classic. Snack in the whole night, oh, what that does to you. Wow, I could have had a V8. V8 cocktail vegetable juice tastes great and is naturally low in calories. Just 35 calories a six-ounce serving. But remember, the time to think of having a V8 is before you've had something else. 
Wow, I could have had a V8. My epiphany, however, was rather closer to the original meeting than the contemporary word because it came about religion in the form of a comedy album that changed my life forever. Think about it. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. He loves you and he needs money. He always needs money. He's all powerful, all perfect, all knowing and all wise. Somehow, just can't handle money. I'd been listening to George Carvins for years before this cut from the 1999 album, You Were All Disease. And his riffs on religion had always played a personal part of my shaping of how I thought of the idea of faith in the divine. But this particular set came right at the right time and the right place to break those last tenuous threads of guilt and tear the, the ties of my faith of my parents and made me realize that no matter how hard I looked at how many religions I sampled, they were all the same because I... Hey, everyone, I'm an atheist! And I've been one all my life. But this isn't the story of how I became an atheist. It was a complete waste of everyone's time. Because like George, I still felt the need to pray to someone from time to time because it makes you feel like you're doing something about the things you can't really do anything about. And I chose in the moment of my epiphany to pray to George Carlin. Like Joe, like George, prayed to Joe Pesci. I pray to George Carlin because George was a guy I could count on to explain shit to me, and I think that's important in the persons you pray to. I always imagined that if George had ever found out that I prayed to him, he would ask me, What are you, fucking stupid? Which is exactly what I would need to hear from it and get up off my ass and take care of my shit. George is not my god or my savior. Georgian isn't my spiritual advisor. In fact, George is, you know... Fucking dead. <laughs> They're fucking dead. And dead people give less than a shit about And won't help me <laughs> to do anything. But this won't stop me from proselytizing you, my pod friends, about the mystery and wonder that was George Dennis Patrick Carlin. Right now, I am praising him. George was born in New York City to Mary and Patrick Carlin in 1937. His mother Mary left Patrick when George was two months old because Patrick was a raging alcoholic. She raised George and his older brother Pat on her own primarily in the Morningside Heights neighborhood of Manhattan. Or as George called it in one of his sketches... Uh, well, we had an interesting neighborhood. It was a little Irish neighborhood with Columbia University all on one side, like including everything connected with Columbia, like Juilliard School of Music was there and the Union Theological Seminary, Jewish Theological Seminary, Riverside Church, St. Luke's Hospital, St. John the Divine Cathedral, all of that stuff on one side. Oh. And on the other side, Harlem. <laughs> and we call our little neighborhood White Harlem because it sounded bad, you know? Where are you from? White Harlem. Hey. <laughs> sound tough, sound bad. The real name was Morningside Heights. Huh? <laughs> 
Trust me, the modern Morningside Heights is quite genteel and very, very gentrified, but they did name the street that George grew up on after him on 121st Street right there in White Harlem. He grew up in Catholic schools, getting kicked out of a surprising number of them before not actually graduating from high school. And after not graduating from high school, George did what many young men did at the time, joined the military to keep from being drafted. It was pre-Vietnam, but the draft was still a possibility, and also, George wanted to pay his way into broadcasting school. God, I feel that so much. I thought I would pay my way into broadcasting school, and look how that turned out for me. George said of his decision to join the Air Force, quote, So, I do have this ambivalence. Obviously, I'm against militaries because of what militaries do. In many ways, though, the Air Force was unmilitary-like. They dropped bombs on people, but they had a golf course, unquote. George was trained as a radar technician and stationed at Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana, which I can speak from experience is a... This place is a shithole. Very much so. And he didn't last long because he was discharged as being unproductive before completing his four-year term of enlistment. Would you like to know exactly why Airman 3rd Class George Carlin was kicked out of the Air Force? Because I wanted to, and I was fucking stoked when I found the paperwork. Allow me to read from the document discharging George Carlin from the United States Air Force, dated July 29th, 1957. This is to inform you, pursuant to Air Force letter, and then a bunch of regulations, I propose to have you eliminated from the Air Force as unproductive. This is as a result of the following. Number one, failure to report for guard duty on June 4th, 1957. Number two, driving while intoxicated, 17 February 1957. Number three, disrespect to an air policeman, failure to obey a lawful order, and disobeying a direct order from an officer. I was the latter-day equivalent of the, air for, of the air policeman, and I know exactly the sort of kind of shit that George did that night. That happened on July or June 24th, 1955. Continuing to read, number four, careless driving, 3 November 1956, and number four, and Lord, I read this on my own paperwork so many times. Let me get into this, and let me, I'm going to read this in the commander voice that I heard it on. Numerous times you were counseled by your supervisors, first sergeant, and myself concerning your personal appearance, failure to maintain your room in a prescribed manner, drinking alcoholic beverages to the extent you could not control your actions, and explaining your responsibility as an airman in the United States Air Force. This was signed Colonel Edward Matthews, Commander 376 Armored and Electronic Squad Maintenance Squadron 376 Bomb Wing, Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana. Unquote. All of this means is that George was a shitty, shitty airman. I mean, I should know because I was too. And aside from the DUI, and I would have had one of those on more than one occasion had I not been a cop, these words could have been lifted directly from my own personnel file. Finding this discharge paperwork made me the happiest I'd been in fucking years. In 1959, Carlin teamed up with Jack Burns, who would be his longtime comedy partner, and the two did a Fort Worth morning radio show before moving to California. Jack and I were working in Fort Worth. He had come down from Boston, where we had met one another, and I had left and gone to Fort Worth. He came down from there, driving out to Hollywood, stopped in, got a job that just had opened up the day before at our station. We roomed together for about three or four months. 
And after the shows at night, I got off at midnight, he was the nighttime newsman, we would go down to an after-hours coffee house in Fort Worth called The Cellar. This was the tail end of the beatnik era, and these people still thought they were all beatniks. And there were some true beats there. And we would improvise a two-man act. We'd, we'd work up little ideas in, in our room uh, during the day, and at night we'd go down there and improvise an act based on these ideas. And it was, it was kind of raunchy. It was pretty raunchy. But based on our success with those people, we didn't get paid. They gave us free liquor. It was a coffee house, but they put liquor in coffee cups. This was the place where Kennedy's Secret Service people spent the night before his assassination, where the infamous drinking party took place that the Secret Service agents were at, the cellar in Fort Worth. Based on this limited success with, these, with this captive audience who knew us and were half drunk, we quit radio and drove to California on spec. In California, Burns and Carlin were noticed by comedy legend Lenny Bruce, who helped them land gigs, including The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. <laughs> Settle down, millennials. There were a lot of fucking Tonight Show hosts that you don't even know about. Carlin would go on to appear on The Tonight Show 130 times over his lifetime, which tends to make one wonder, what the fuck I've done with my life? I mean, I've been on one other podcast. What the fuck is wrong with me? If you're not a fan of Carlin or a religious devotee such as I, you've probably never heard Clean Carlin, the kind of doofy, doofy, happy, hippie character that George was known for in his early career, or even later in his career, when he was, my God, of all things... As Mr. Conductor's double, I think it's time to start some trouble. Everyone thinks he's nice and kind, but I'll be mean and change their mind. Then he'll leave and I can stay, and nobody here can get in my way. Yeah, he was on the same fucking children's show that had Thomas the Tank Engine. Hearing George, that voice, that cadence, but is that wholesome, pure, it boggles the mind. I mean, but it's pure George. Now... Let, let me play another quick piece of clean George. This you, you can't imagine what he looked like in a suit with a skinny tie and short hair and no beard. This was from Merv Griffith in 1965. He's got a bundle of great routines, and I love this one. Here is George Carlin. George? I've been watching the Westerns. All of us have been watching Western movies, an endless stream of them, for our entire lives, and I've noticed something about them. When the Westerns involve Indians... And sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's Brian Donlevy with a black hat and a crooked card game. <laughs> when they involve Indians, the big scene always seems to be when the Indians finally attack the cowboys. We've been waiting for it throughout the entire movie. You can see them standing on the hill. And uh, <laughs> that's the big scene, when they finally get to them. And you always see exactly how the cowboys prepare for this attack. Now pull them wagons around the circle. Get them old ladies up there loading up the weapons. Come on, now tear up the petticoats. Use them with bandages. Get that one up there. Sand, sand. Can't... Big hassle, we never see how the Indians prepare. <laughs> and it's their attack, right? Now, the Indians were good fighters. Just because they started in Massachusetts and wound up defending Malibu doesn't mean they were... George, through the 50s and 60s, was a solid, well-paid, but not particularly notable or controversial comedian until... George got tired of that shit. I pull this from a dissertation written for UChicago School of Law. Quote, simultaneously, however, a vibrant counterculture emerged around him, and Carlin became dissatisfied with his act and his role in the entertainment business. 
I felt like a traitor to my generation, he said. Although government policy might have affected some of these boundaries, the most obvious constraints were cultural and economic. In 1969, Carlin was suspended from a high-paying run at the Frontier, Frontier Hotel in Las Vegas for a joke that began, I got no ass. In 1970, the Frontier outright fired him for saying, I don't say shit. Down the street, Buddy Hackett says shit. Red Fox says shit. I don't say shit. I smoke a little bit of it, but I don't say it. Carlin was soon wearing his hair long, playing universities and dropping acid, which he called a profound turning point. His transformation was marked by a Grammy Award-winning album, FMNAM, which was released in early 1972. The title referred to the more progressive and the more, the more tame radio formats, as well as Carlin's new and old selves, unquote. But what Car put Carlin in the history books, as well as the law books, was a sketch from his follow-up album to FMNAM called The Seven Words, you can never say on television. There are some people that aren't into all the words. There are some people that would have you not use certain words. Yeah, there are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 to seven. They must really be bad. They'd have to be outrageous to be separated from a group that large. All of you over here, you seven. Bad words. Those words were, of course, shit, piss, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. What, did you think I was going to pass up the chance to recite the list at an official capacity? That's why I got into fucking radio in the first place. By the way, that specific clip that I just played was the same one that started the fucking trouble for George in the first place. And it all happened in 1973 on WBAI-FM New York City, which still exists today in much the same kind of format it did in 1973. Quoted again for the same UChicago dissertation, quote, Among WBAI's program was Lunch Pail, a live afternoon show with an audience participation hosted by Paul Gorman. Gorman had degrees from Yale and Oxford and had worked as a speechwriter for Eugene McCarthy's 1968 presidential campaign. Gorman later described the episode as an investigation into the power of language and how words lose integrity during political words. But during political debates, filthy words was included as an incisive satirical view of the subject under discussion and Carlin as a significant social satirist in the tradition of Mark Twain and Mort Saul. Pacifica, which was the parent company of WBAI, didn't, it did indicate to WBAI listeners who were warned immediately before and after the routine that it might be offensive and that concerned listeners to change the station for 15 minutes, unquote. This, of course, did not matter because some asshole had to get offended, and the name of that asshole cocksucker was John Douglas, a morality crusader and chronic pain in the ass for WBAI and its parent company, Pacifica. Douglas was the only person to file a complaint about Carlin, the Carlin bit airing that day, but he was enough. In his pissy letter to the FCC, Douglas called the clip garbage and complained that his son, his 15-year-old son, so you know he was saying shit even worse than that, heard bad words. The FCC, which were a real bunch of cunts about this whole thing, got all on Pacifica's shit about this, about indecency, and decided they wanted to make an example of them. And the FCC took the complaint 
as an excuse to, quote, clarify the standards which will be utilized in considering the public's complaints about the broadcast of indecent language, unquote. Long story short, the FCC ruled that no one could use potty talk on the airwaves when it was reasonable to assume children would hear said potty talk. Hell, they could use potty talk late at night, just not during the day. All the FCC wanted was the policy to say that you couldn't say piss, shit, cunt, cut, fuck, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits before 9 p.m. The WBAS broadcast of George was ruled indecent, and that was it. No fine, no suspension. They just said don't do it again. Now, the station sued on First Amendment grounds, and the case eventually found itself before the Supreme Court of the United States. And you know what? The station, yeah, it completely lost, which is why you cannot say shit, piss, funk, cut, cock, cock, motherfucker, and tits on Good Morning America, or indeed at all before 9 p.m. on any broadcast station. But the entirety of George Carlin's seven words you cannot say on television was entered into the court record as part of the case history, and he's the only comedian that I could find to accomplish this legal threshold, and that, pod friends, is fucking special. Now, as this sort of notoriety often does, the whole thing just served to make George even more popular, because I guess Joe Pesci blessed him. He also began doing a little thing for a brand new television network that had just been created, filming his stand-up shows and broadcasting them to home viewers with all of his profane glory because it was in over the cable networks versus broadcast. He could say, shit, piss, cunt, cunt, hot, sucker, motherfucker, and tits. It is impossible for me to get those out without laughing. After all these years. Oh. <laughs> the reason this tiny little fledgling cable network would broadcast people like George Carlin is because there was no one that would sell them the rights to show movies to home viewers because they were convinced no one would watch them from their couch when they could see them in the theaters. This tiny little insignificant cable network that helped George Carlin and so many other comedians, you might have heard of it, or you might not, it's hard to say, but let's just say that they have a little show about dragons that a lot of people were watching. In 1975, Carlin was the very first host for the very first episode of this tiny little show that NBC put on live late Saturday night. And that show went too on to some notoriety. George stopped touring for a while in 1976 to have his first of a series of heart attacks because, goddamn, did George love fucking cocaine. I mean, a lot of people loved cocaine in the 70s and 80s, but George, well... You know, <laughs> you've been overdoing it. George loved, among other things, cocaine, booze, Vicodin, acid, and weed. Though the weed thing was more of a medicine than a habit. Rehab and George... That went on for most of George's life. George went on after his comedy specials to do a lot of television and movies. And I played a clip from this earlier, but I want to go back to this, that George was Mr. Fucking Conductor on a children's show that featured Thomas the Tank Engine. And I will never work out in my head how someone thought to say, oh, We've got this cute and fun children's show with Thomas the Tank Engine. Who can we get to play conductor on the trains? Oh, I know. Let's get the guy who said this. You never see someone taking a shit while running at full speed. <laughs> and you never see a picture of Margaret Thatcher strapping on a dildo. 
George had a TV show on Fox for about a year called The George Carlin Show, which he played a cabbie in New York City. Which was It was a fucking brilliant show. I love this show. I wish that it had gone longer. But at the same time, because it ended when it did, George went back out on the road. And most importantly, from George's time in Hollywood, we've got the greatest movie performance ever done. The key character in the greatest movie ever fucking made. Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. Gentlemen, I'm here to help you with your history report. What? How? Bill, what? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Yes, George was Rufus in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and the sequel. I don't know. They're doing the third one. I don't know how they're going to do Rufus without George. I don't see how it happened. George married twice, and they were both good marriages. His first wife, Brenda, he married in 1960, and they were together, together to her death in 1977. And their daughter, Kelly, Carlin's only child, is the keeper of George's legacy. He met his second wife, Sally, six months after Brenda's death, and they were married until George's death from heart failure in 2008. George Carlin is perhaps one of the most influential comedians of the 20th century. I think only Lenny Bruce comes close. But names like Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, Louis C.K., Louis Black, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, Bill Mayer, Jay Leno, and Ben Stiller, Kevin Smith all name George as one of their major influences. And though my name is not worthy to appear on this list, I am going to engage in the vanity of this moment and put my name right there at the end of it because Dave Bledsoe was profoundly shaped by George Carlin in so many ways, not the least was in the losing of my religion. Straight talk time here. Because I know this might come as some of a, kind of a shock to some of you, but I'm a pretty angry guy. Been that way my whole life. The only thing that scares me about me is how angry I am. And I'm angry almost all the time. Gavin, I swear to God, if you play a Hulk drop here, I will come back in the booth. See? Angry all the time. And when I was a kid... I was incapable of showing that anger. It just wasn't allowed. It wasn't that I was, you know, being punished or forced, although I was punished for throwing a tantrum. It was just not allowed. It was like playing with matches or walking buck-ass naked down the street. It was inconceivable to do. So I suppressed it until the suppression of that anger became a part of who I was. And you can't keep that kind of shit bottles inside of you or you will blow up and kill some motherfuckers. So I developed a rich fantasy life where I could vent that repressed rage into fiction, and that worked pretty well for most of my childhood. In the 20s, I was like a lot of young men. That anger morphed into kind of a towering resentment towards authority, which was not great considering that I was in the military. But what saved me from fucking up my entire life was that I was really smart, which I am. And I don't say that to be braggy, I say that because that made me able to recognize the consequences of manifesting my anger were bigger than any momentary relief I might have felt by releasing that rage, which is why I am not currently serving life in prison in a military prison and why a certain United States Air Force major is still breathing. 
There wasn't anything I wasn't angry about. My parents, my jobs, my lack of romantic relationships, my station in life, why I wasn't going to college, and most of all, I was angry at God for not doing very good by me. Because at 20, the world revolves around you. And because I wasn't into other mu music like other people my age, I was into comedy, the comedians I listened to were also angry. People like Bill Hicks or Sam Kinison. I mean, I'd listened to George, but, you know, I knew him from his lighter days, like Icebox Man, Icebox Man before he got angry. But when George got angry, and I discovered that when smart people got angry, they could be funny. And in that humor... I could fucking find a way to keep my rage from exploding. I could channel it into creativity, and it probably saved my life, and it definitely saved some other people's lives. It was through George that I could get over being angry at things that I couldn't control and stop giving a shit about them. I was able to let go of my anger towards an invisible sky wizard or the unfairness of the universe because one didn't exist and the other didn't give a shit, and it was fucking liberating as hell. George taught me that I could take my frustration and fury and channel it into something creative so that I could own it rather than being owned by it. So when I say that I pray to George Carlin, I do not mean I get down on my knees and talk to a dead man. First of all, if I did something like that, George would start unzipping his fly and laughing at me. And second of all, he would say that I was fucking crazy. What I mean is that when I feel that anger rising up, I stop and think of what I can do with that anger rather than what letting that anger do stuff to me. And that gives me power over the one thing that has always frightened me about myself, and that's a precious ability, all because of a dude that loved words, loved thinking, and you know what? He actually loved humanity even if he said he didn't, and that... <laughs> he, only, he wasn't angry with us. He was really, really fucking disappointed with us. And I'm going to play a clip right here in the closing of the show from George. It was the last, one of the last interviews he recorded just a year before his death. And he's going to tell you that he doesn't care. He's going to tell you that he just doesn't give a shit. But you can tell he does. And he's making a joke about it. I think George Carlin loved humanity more than almost anyone else I've ever heard of. So this is from uh, the Sirius XM, show, XM radio show Unmasked, and it's George Carlin talking about his anger in his comedy and his writing. I think it's not so much what I've, I'm angry about, because anger in, implies that you have a stake in the outcome, that you care. And I don't really care. I don't. I, I mean, it comes across as anger. You know, I'm, obviously there's a, there's a, a theatrical, there's a heightened kind of intensified theatrical anger that you need to convey these thoughts. But I'm not personally an angry man. I'm not personally angry about these things. I think they're, they're wonderful because I root against the species. I finally, I finally came... I came to a realization, and this freed me as a, as a writer. This was part of that transformation in the 90s. I realized I didn't really care about this outcome on this planet. I didn't care what happened to the species. I think this is a species that was given great gifts and had great potential and squandered them. I pray to George because George has learned the art of not giving a fuck to stay sane. I pray to George that he can teach me to disassociate myself from the fucks that I give about this planet, these people all around me, or at least the ability to pretend as well as he did and to make a funny 
funny joke about them. I pray to George so that on days like today, when, say, the President of the United States goes to launch an attack against a country that we've provoked into attacking us but still hasn't really done anything to deserve killing a few hundred people and then chickens out at the last minute, I'm able to take it philosophically and to talk about it on a fucking radio show rather than fucking running and jumping over the White House fence with a gun in my hand. Or when I learned that that same president raped a woman in a Bergdorf Goodman's fucking changing room in the mid-1990s. I don't fucking lose my mind. Because George decided a long time ago that his anger had to have a certain emotional distance and direction. And I pray every single day that George will teach me how to do that for myself. That is it for our show this week. I know a lot of shit is going out there in the world, and all of it's bad. And this show has traditionally covered the bad stuff, but honestly, as I've said all through the show, I don't have it in me right now. Maybe, you know, you're, you're tuned in to hear me fucking talk about the bad shit, but I can't keep doing that. I just can't, because if I keep doing that, my, I'm just going to stop doing the show. Well, wow, I mean, that's not the worst idea I've ever heard. But maybe you are like me that just needs a mental health break and you're looking to get away from all that bad shit. Well, I've got some good news for you because this being a show that has traditionally been all over the map, I've got some great news. I'm taking the map and I'm throwing it out the window. A, a map is a piece of paper that had roads and borders and directions written on it that we used before all these things were on our phone. Look it up in a museum sometime. What I'm saying is this show is going places where... Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. This week it was George Carlin. Next week it could be a deep, a deep dive on Space 1999. Hey, Gavin, put a deep dive on Space 1999 on the production schedule for sometime in the near future. So I'm not doing politics. The only thing that will bring me back to politics will be things like, you know, idle mentions of raping women in Bergdorf Goodman, changing rooms, going to war with Iran, impeachment hearings, the start of the Iowa caucus, or just going to war anyway. So, you know, we probably got a couple of weeks before I have to come back to politics. So in the meantime, uh, rate and review this show wherever you get your podcast. Follow the show on Twitter at the Hell underscore podcast. Uh, all the shows are at the show name on SoundCloud and at whatthehellpodcast.com. So for me, Dave Praise George Bledsoe, producer Church of Benny Hill Gavin, and all the fictional worshippers of Bob Newhart in the show, we want to show this one goes out to all the Joe Pesci worshippers out there, and we'll see you all next week. In a show, you hate all the people and food. I'm happy, I'm laughing and fun all the time. You're always in a bad mood. I always look forward, I never look back. But you bet you dwell in the past. So I'm telling you, baby, I'm through with you. Take your love, shove it up your fucking ass. Let me hit a fan. <laughs>
I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.